Today on The Black Goat, we have a special guest, Katie Corker, and we talk about open science, meta-analysis, and professional development, and a letter about whether you should choose where to publish your work based on impact factors or open access. Hi, everybody, and welcome to The Black Goat. My name is Sanjay Srivastava. My co-hosts are Alexa Tullet and Samin Vizier. And today we are joined by a guest. Uh, we're very happy to have joining us Katie Corker. Katie is an assistant professor at Grand Valley State University and was previously at Kenyon College. She's a quantitative methodologist with expertise in meta-analysis, and she does research on individual differences in motivation. Katie is also president of the Society for the Improvement of Psychological Science, and she's been active in working on open science issues in psychology. We're very happy to have Katie joining us. Welcome, Katie. Hi, everyone. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Hi, Katie. Me. <laughs> Hi, Katie. <laughs> it's great to see you. So how, how, did, how did this come to pass that you were, so you're visiting Samin, and we're like, holy shit, we got to have Katie on. Yeah, yeah. I'm here because uh, APS is this week, and uh, I'm doing a workshop at APS on uh, open science reproducibility stuff. And uh, I'm also presenting about a meta-analysis that I've been doing recently about uh, temperature priming. So this is going to be like a big spoiler. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> We're going to reveal all of your views about meta-analysis before your presentation. <laughs> yeah. Nobody, Nobody's going to go to APS. Or people are just going to stay home. They're going to be like, fuck this shit. We're we're not going to the conference anymore. <laughs> we're just gonna go get like what? What do you get in San Francisco these days? I feel like uh, what's yeah, the, I feel like I poke was, is like four years ramen, out. Ramen, ramen is like a year ago. Yeah, okay. my California yeah. foods are fish and tacos and basically anything fresh, like avocados. avocados. Okay, yeah, avocados mm. for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But you're you're gonna have to still give the talk, so everyone else will go get. But you, you know you'll be up there to like the empty room while everyone's getting fish tacos or whatever. <laughs> I guess so. Maybe, maybe we won't talk about it. That's my. Uh, well, no, speaking of our episode will come out after. So. <laughs> She's only spoiling it for you guys, and you guys aren't coming to APS anyway. So. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, no. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So. Well. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. So. Um, so there, there's this research on social media or this debate in social media research about whether when people post good things that they did, does it make their friends happier or does it just make them jealous? So Alexa, um, when I posted about going to a Taylor <laughs> Swift concert this weekend, which one was it? <laughs> Honestly, my first reaction, um, because I think your first post was like you guys in an empty stadium, you know, like waiting for the concert to start. And I saw that and I was like, my first reaction was like, he can't be serious. Like, he can't be <laughs> so lucky that he's going to a Taylor Swift concert today. Um, and then I saw your later posts and I felt a lot of, I, I mean, it was a mix of emotions. Honestly, Sanjay, I was happy for you. I was jealous. <laughs> so I, I mean, I knew, I knew that there was like a Taylor Swift thing because people sometimes tell you you look like Taylor Swift, but I didn't, I didn't realize it was like this intense. Well, I don't know. Like it's, it's sort of a Taylor Swift. So yes, my, my students used to tell me that I look like Taylor Swift, and that increasingly is not the case, which I think is because Taylor Swift and I are aging at different rates. <laughs> um. I know she, <laughs> she she looks really weathered. Uh, you know, the, they wouldn't even do any close up on a giant screen. Exactly. Um, I just have fewer wrinkles in her. That's what it is. Um, 
But uh, but I think like really just the idea of like going to a huge pop concert is like very like if you had gone to see Beyonce or like Rihanna, I would also be equally yeah. jealous. And I've heard that that Taylor Swift concerts are like uh, really exciting and also very expensive. Um, yeah, it was. Um, so I, I was trying to remember the last time I was at a stadium concert. I've been to a fair number of arena concerts, but like a full on stadium concert. Um, I'm not even sure. I saw like Queen, um, but it was it, it, it was like after Freddie Mercury. It was way after Freddie Mercury had passed mm-hmm. on. And so it was like it was kind of cool, but it was like not, you know, the same yeah. thing, obviously. Yeah, no, it was it was really done up. There was fireworks. There was flames shooting out of the top of uh-huh. the stage. There was this like two different like gondolas. So there was like a main stage and then these two little like outpost island stages. And she took like a gondola to one and then walked through the crowd <laughs> to the other and then took another gondola back. There's like giant amazing. inflatable snakes. Yeah, it was. And it, and I couldn't see the band. Like, I don't even, you know, there was like every, like twice, maybe for 10 seconds, they showed like a close up of some dude playing a guitar. But for all I know, it was just like someone was playing the backup music on a computer because it uh-huh. was just her and her dancers. So, which is, which is like a pop concert thing, I think, but it was not, that's not usually the kind of music I go to. So that mm-hmm. was, that was kind of interesting for me. Yeah. It's like a totally different kind of show, right? Yeah. And and let me tell you, the the line for the men's room was like non-existent. I just like <laughs> I walked in and I just walked right up to a urinal, didn't even have to wait inside the men's room. It was so easy. Although it is funny because in the men's room, you know, you're looking around and it's like you can't tell who's like a good dad and who's just a creepy dude because mm-hmm. they're in the men's room. You yeah, know. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, quick poll. Do you guys ever use um, the bathroom of the gender that you don't identify with? Yes. yes. Sanjay? Yes, and actually no. I've been Not I on was purpose. kicked out of a bar <laughs> once in college for doing that, for using the bathroom. You're of such the a badass. <laughs> yeah, no, I was good the opposite. You. I was so embarrassing. <laughs> Wait, was it an accident? I've never done it in a multi-stall bathroom. I've only done it with a single stall where they shouldn't even have genders. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah this was a mm-hmm. single stall, and it was not an accident. The line for the women's room was really long, so I was like, I'll just like go you know, in the other bathroom real quick. And when I came out, there was this huge bouncer that was there pointing at a very large sign that said, not to do this, otherwise you would be kicked out of the bar. And he showed me to the door. <laughs> Damn, he could not wow. get away with that now. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't want to add to your jealousy, Alexa, but in the 1997-98 year, I went to both a Celine Dion concert and a Steve Miller Band concert. I don't know what the Steve Miller Band is, but I'm very now. jealous of the Celine Dion concert. <laughs> <laughs> I am super, super jealous. I would totally go to a Celine Dion concert. Oh my god, it was terrible. It was with, it was with an ex-boyfriend after we'd broken up, but we bought the tickets when we were still together. It was like the worst possible scenario you could imagine. That's Maybe it was 96. <laughs> I went to um, uh, something very different, like a piano concert recently. Like um, Tuscaloosa Symphony had like a piano soloist, and he played a piece by someone um, named Rachmaninoff. Um, and all I could think during the, well, it was amazing, first of all. I think maybe I talked about this. Um, but all I could think about through one section of this was, I think Celine Dion samples this. Um, and sure enough, she does. <laughs> it was like it really, it really messed up my experience with uh, 
with listening to this guy play classical piano. Do you know about, do you guys know the song All By Myself? Yeah. The one that goes all by myself. <laughs> that one? And Sanjay is back. <laughs> That's the one. I'm having I'm having network connection issues, but it came back just in time for that. <laughs> so I'm trying to combat the whole only positive pictures on social media by posting a picture of my cat being a total bitch. <laughs> yeah, I saw that picture. That was scary. That's I support those kinds of animal pictures. You know. Wait, so what did I your cat my do? Other cat. So I took my other cat, the boy cat, to the vet, and the, he was having bladder problems. And they were like, yeah, he has a bladder infection, but it's like a sterile infection. It's not... Anyway, sorry. I've, I feel like all I talk about is my cat, my pet's pooping and <laughs> Anyway, they were like, whatever you do, reduce his stress level. And I come home, and his sister, the other cat, who, their brother and sister, is just a, just a jackass to him for days. Like, she won't let him in the same room that I'm in. She, like, hisses at him. She won't let him eat. Anyway, so I thought they were getting along, so I went to snap a picture, and then she, like, immediately starts hissing at him. <laughs> That's funny. I'm, I'm showing the way, pet ownership as it really is. So should we uh, do our letter? Is this a good time to do the letter? This is perfect. Right. Okay, here's a letter. Uh, Dear the Black Goat, I'm a first-year psychology PhD student, and I've spent the past few weeks working on a Prisma statement for a system, uh, systematic review and meta-analysis for my first study. At my last supervisory meeting, we discussed the review and the possible journals it could be sent to. One of my supervisors believed that it could be sent to Health Psychology Review, which has a massive impact factor. This evoked some excitement around the room, admittedly including myself, since it is quite prestigious and has a high impact factor. However, I have also become aware that impact factors are fairly arbitrary and not a good predictor of citation rates or quality. I've been reading Chris Chambers' book. It also doesn't seem to be open access or listed as a journal that supports registered reports, which would be useful given the work I have done so far. Providing what I produce is of good standard and I could have my pick of the journals, this brings me to a quandary. Ideologically, I want to publish in a journal that supports open access, but this would come at the cost of a high impact CV stamp for my supervisors and myself. Whilst the stamp doesn't appear to mean anything in real terms, it is valued uh, amongst more experienced academics, recruitment committees, promotion decisions, etc. Have you any advice to early researchers on whether we should be issuing impact factors, how should we select journals to submit to, and how to raise these issues with supervisors and PIs? Yours sincerely, Anonymous. This is a really tough question. I think it's one that I'm a total hypocrite about. Like I work with a lot of journals to try to improve these practices and stuff like that, and then especially with my students' papers, we end up going to the ones that are traditionally considered the best, not, not necessarily just based on impact factor, but just whatever our subfield values the most. And the compromise I've been trying to make is like when we move down that list to go to a journal we really respect and want to support faster than we might have otherwise. So instead of it being like fifth on the list, we try to bump it up to like third on the list or something like mm-hmm. that. But that's kind of the compromise we've been making Mm-hmm. Do you guys perceive a change in um, how these other journals look on people's CVs, or do you guys think that's not changing at all? And there's the same, um, like people, the the dilemma that people perceive is a real one that it will be costly to choose the one that's more in line with their principles. 
I mean, I think with a meta-analysis in particular, that's usually pretty high-impact work. So maybe it's maybe the particular outlet doesn't matter as much. And there, there are really only a handful of journals that are specific for that type of work anyway. So the, the choice is restricted in ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I, 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 like Samin, I resonate with this because I, I face the same dilemma. And pretty much everything I publish is with my students. And so you know, or, or with our other early career collaborators. And so I, I'm always like, oh, yeah, I could publish anywhere and, and, you know, it would be fine. I do feel like the, and this it's tough because I think the, the field is shifting. It's going to shift. I think that things like open access are going to be evaluated more positively. I also think things like impact factors are less useful with open access journals because a lot of them don't, aim to it's like the distribution of impact rather than the central tendency of impact at a lot of a lot of journals where you know open access journals because they're they're not selecting on high impact and so they they can have high impact work but it may may not be the average and so that that kind of assessment is going to change i mean but i it, it's definitely still that there's that like quick heuristic cue where if someone is looking over cvs and making that first cut in a in a job review they're going to notice the name of the prestigious Schmancy journal that they recognize, um, and and it will have some mm-hmm. effect. And so, so I definitely, and, and you know, and there are some people that are more traditional about how they evaluate CVs than others. So for some people, that's that that's not only going to be their first impression, but that's going to be their like closely considered second and third impression. Also, mm-hmm. is that a you know a fancy journal is better. I mean, I, what I would say is that if if you want to do this and you're thinking about implications when you're applying for jobs, is to to be to be bold and to to say why you made this choice, like in your application materials, to say that. Uh, um, and again, this won't be the first impression because people won't necessarily see it, but that you know you can say in the context of a statement or a cover letter that you know, this work is so one one really good reason for publishing open access, which doesn't, I think, get as much discussion as it should, is that it people kind of talk about it in in these sort of like highfalutin, everyone should have access. But specifically, like if you can say there's an audience for this work, that it's really important for the real world impact of this work for them to have access to this. So if this is a a health review and there's a community of patients or or policymakers Mm -hmm. that you want to be able to read this work, you can actually turn that into a selling point. I chose to submit this to wherever open access journal so that this constituency would have access to, to this. And and so I don't think that that answers the question of where you should send it, but mm-hmm. I, I think that as you're thinking about where to send it, keeping in mind, and, and you're thinking about the sort of like career implications, keeping in mind that there are ways to actually turn that into a plus and to make that a selling point. And, and I mean, my experience in, in the committees I've been on at Oregon is that we would, I think, respond really well to someone who made a thoughtful reasoned case for doing things that Mm -hmm. way i think one thing that's changing is i I think the newer journals that are like really committed to open and reproducible research and stuff like that i think they're not they're not nowhere near competing with the most prestigious journals but i think they're starting to catch up and in some cases maybe have a better reputation than some of the like second or third tier traditional journals so i think it makes sense if you're not willing to skip the first year journals, that's a totally understandable, but maybe instead of going to like the next rung down of traditional journals, consider going to 
one of the newer journals that's more in line with your values. Mm -hmm. um, the other, the other kind of small step that I recommend taking is if there's a journal that has a pretty bad track, track record on things that you care about, so maybe they've been openly against things or they've like mm -hmm. not let reviewers ask for data during the review process for no good reason or things like that, then maybe consider crossing them off your list. Yeah. So I have a few right. journals where I just won't submit to anymore and I'm willing to make that sacrifice. Yeah. I would say in terms of the um, tenure and promotion committee or hiring committee issue, that calculus does vary a little bit depending on the kind of institution in question. So um, when I worked at Kenyon College, which is quite small, we only had a handful of faculty in our department, um, there wasn't anyone in my really sort of specific sub area, and that's, that was true of all the areas, or sort of like one of each person. And so that means that sometimes the heuristics that you have for sort of which journals are the best and so on aren't really transferred across those subfields so that your colleagues don't really know one way or the other what journal is a good one or not a good one. Um, so they, you know, they have some heuristics, like maybe they rely on um, society journals being of a higher reputation, but uh, it's kind of up to you as the applicant or the uh, candidate for promotion to make the case, like Sanjo was saying, for, for the um, value of the work in its outlet. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think inevitably where you decide to send something is going to depend. Um, you're going to have to weigh a, a bunch of different factors, right? And probably not every time you're going to be able to max out everything that you care about. Um, so I think like what you were talking about, Samin, with like maybe crossing places off where they they do things that you really can't get behind and sort of like boosting journals up if they do things that you like really like but also i mean the heuristics that people are using where they you know uh give more credit to articles that are published in higher prestige journals i don't think those are going to go away right away and it is one way to demonstrate the quality of your work right if you can get your work into a journal where you know 95 percent of the articles get rejected maybe you know their values don't completely align with yours um but there's going to be some quality signal probably there um and so i think like you trying to like balance the things that you care about um across your submissions i think is a fair and also if you're doing the work that you want to be doing and you're like demonstrating these open science practices in your work, but then submitting it to a journal that doesn't necessarily openly encourage that. I mean, you're that's still like a, a big part of the battle. I like your optimism about the fact that selective journals are still a signal of quality. Yeah, I said that for today's. I said that, and I was like, <laughs> people will know that I was talking and not you, Samir. Yeah. Well, there, <laughs> they're, they're, they're definitely a signal. The question is how valid and, and how invalid, but people are still taking them that way. But yeah, I think that's a really good point that what, you know, there there is a, if if you really care about having your work be open and reproducible and rigorous, there there's a lot that you can do even in the context of a traditional journal. So you can make everything available online and link it from the article. And another thing in terms of access, if you decide to go to a journal that's not open access in the journal sense, most journals nowadays will still allow you to post preprints online. And so you can still make your work available 
And there's this concept, the, the terminology that's sometimes used is gold open access and green open access. So gold, I think, is like the journal itself is open access. But then there's quote unquote green open access, which is the journal will allow you to post a preprint. And uh, most um, most APA journal or APA journals, allow, I think, allow this and, and a bunch of others. There's a good database called the Sherpa Romeo database that you can look up any journal and it'll tell you what its access policy is. We'll link that in the show notes. So that's another way that if you're going to a more traditional journal, you can, but you want to make your work as open as possible, there are lots of other things that you can do. Well, yeah, uh, hopefully we've helped uh, Anonymous. Does anyone else have anything else, anything they wanted to add? I don't think so. Okay. All right, cool. I well, want to start uh, asking thanks. Katie questions. Yeah. All right. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you, Anonymous, for uh, for your letter. And uh, people listening, if you have letters that you want to send to us for us to read and respond to, or just you want to get in touch with us for any other reason, you can email us letters at theblackgoatpodcast.com. Uh, we're really grateful to people that send us letters, whether it's stuff to read and respond to on episodes or people that just send us their thoughts and reactions about things we've been talking about. Um, we also interact with people, get a lot of really cool feedback on Twitter. Our Twitter feed is at BlackGoatPod. We have a Facebook page, facebook.com slash BlackGoatPod. And our website is www.theblackgoatpodcast.com. Cool. So, yeah, so let's talk to Katie. Katie, um, we, uh, uh, we we introduced Katie at the start of the the show and... Katie is, I think I was excited to talk to you for, like, there's a bunch of different things that I'm excited to, to talk to you about. Uh, one, which we're definitely going to get to, is talking about meta-analysis and, and some of the work you've done on how to do meta-analyses, as well as specifically on a meta-analysis you're working on. But I kind of, I, we also do a lot of professional development discussion on the podcast, mm-hmm. and I think one of the things that we often run into and we've gotten feedback to this effect and i think it's pretty fair is that you know samin alexa and i are all at research institutions phd granting institutions um and you know people have sometimes uh um sort of responded and said like you guys have a fairly limited perspective and and katie you've you know and one of the things that i think is is tough about like advising students is that you know by definition everyone gets their degree at a doctorate granting university everyone who's their advisors and mentors by definition is at a doctorate granting university some people have never been in any other kind anywhere in their education um, if that's where they went to undergrad too so what are what I mean you Katie you've obviously got your uh, we didn't say this you got your phd at michigan state which is like a big land grant state university giant doctorate granting university but you've been at kenyon college which is a liberal arts college you're now at grand valley state which is a large master's granting institution what are for for people that are at like graduate students who are sort of thinking about different career paths what are some of the things that you think people te- don't know that they ought to know um, that would maybe surprise them or just that, that they might not be aware of? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I would say that when I was a graduate student, I definitely fell into this category that I didn't really have a lot of knowledge about these different kinds of institutions. Like I had it in my head that there was just research-focused places and teaching-focused places, um, and it turns out that there's at least... within the teaching focused half of things there's a lot of variability in terms of 
um, the types of institutions that there are and, and the focuses of those different departments. Um, so I would say um, for a student who's considering work in this kind of department, that, that's the very first thing to know is that there are many different varieties of experience that you could have. Um, I mean, I, I think, yeah, I think I was really naive. I, I didn't even know that um, teaching loads themselves vary at teaching focused institutions. So I thought, you know, oh, it just means that you'll teach a lot, but I didn't really have a sense for what a lot might mean. Um, so just to kind of give a sense of what I've seen in ads or, or kind of what I've experienced. Um, my first job at Kenyon College was a two, three load, which means you teach two courses one semester and three the other. And they had recently transitioned maybe 10 years before I got there from a 3-3 down to a 2-3 because they wanted that additional course release to give their faculty a chance to do a bit more research. So as far as um, teaching focused schools go, that was one that actually they did care quite a bit about the research activity of faculty. Now, what that actually looked like in practice, you know, uh, <laughs> there could be some disagreement. Like they thought that they had a pretty heavy focus on research, but compared to say um, maybe Colgate or some of these other kind of aspirant peers that Kenyon had, you know, the focus on research was even less. Um, many people didn't have grants. It wasn't um, required or encouraged for people to get grants, um, but there was an expectation that you were gonna be research active and mentoring students in research. Um, my current job, it's a 3-3 load, so I teach three courses per semester. Um, but the, the loads go all the way up to 4-4 at some kinds of schools that are similar to the one that I work at now, um, or in a quarter system, maybe 2-2-2 or 2-3-2, um, which would be two courses per quarter and three courses in one quarter. Um, so it's, yeah, it's all over the place in terms of like what, um, what the standards actually are, what they want. I have a question for you, Katie. My question is like, I feel like a lot of, um, young faculty get the advice that they shouldn't do a lot of service. Um, and something that I admire about you is that I feel like you sort of ignored that. Um, and I feel like you do a ton <laughs> of service. And so I sort of wanted to ask, I mean, was that an intentional choice? Would you recommend that? And feel free to just like brag about how selfless you are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I really enjoy service. So um, I think my involvement in it has just stemmed from me choosing to do things that I thought would be useful or that I enjoyed doing. Um, so I wouldn't say it was super intentional. In fact, I, um, I often am like arguing with myself in my head about whether I should be doing that stuff or I should be doing more uh, research focused stuff or, or things that would like en enhance my career mm -hmm. in other ways. Um, but I do, I really enjoy it um, and I think that it has value. So I've continued to do it. Um, the funny thing is though, since, so I'm also a personality psychologist and I definitely believe in the stability of personality. Um, but if I had looked back a while ago through the like annual review letters that I got in grad school, this was like, you know, faculty telling me about my progress as a graduate student and somewhere around the middle, like maybe like year three, even then people were like, she, Katie is doing too much service. <laughs> like she should <laughs> stop doing service and start doing other things. And I was so angry when I got this feedback. I was like, I really, you know, I'm doing this stuff because I like it, not because I'm trying to avoid other tasks, but. Um, but it wasn't that it wasn't perceived that way. But I ignored it anyway, and, and kept uh, joining committees and 
uh, forming various <laughs> initiatives and things. Do you have a sense of whether it helped or hindered with getting your jobs, or like, did it ever come up as like a plus or a minus? I mean, you've also done some kinds of service that are quite visible, so I imagine that could help. Like you, you're president mm-hmm. of SIPS, you're organizing yeah. the ARP conference and the SIPS conference, you're on the board of ARP. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like the visibility has helped as my career has gone on. Um, you know, and I'm trying to think earlier on if there was any particular service that was helpful. I mean, I think the, um, some people consider reviewing service, and I do a decent amount of reviewing for journals. I think that has enhanced my research a lot, and it's enhanced my um, kind of exposure to, to different areas of psychology, which has helped with my teaching. Um, so I would say I try to make my service activities synergistic with my other uh, areas of my career. Like I, I, I try not to do things that I think serve only one purpose. So for example, like right now, I'm on a committee in my department that is working on revising our research methods curriculum, which might sound like really boring and kind of a pain in the butt, but I think it's really important because um, our students are getting just an okay quality experience in those courses, and I think they're really, really important for their educations. Mm-hmm. And um, I have to teach these courses almost all the time, so the better we can make them in terms of the students' experience, the better they're going to be in my experience, mm-hmm. too. So mm-hmm. it's serving two purposes. I also have a question going back to Sanjay's question. So like, if you think back to when you were a grad student or if you imagine grad students who are getting close to the end of their training and they're debating whether or not to consider either yeah. a small selective liberal arts college or a master's granting institution or mm-hmm. other kinds of teaching-oriented how should they decide if that's for them? Like, what are, yeah, what, how would you know if that's, if you're well suited for that or it's well suited yeah. for you? Yeah. yeah. So, my, my story on this topic is that I don't think I had a lot of self perception then, and I'm not sure I have it now, but basically because I wasn't really 100% sure which type of institution would be best for me, I just applied really, really broadly. And then I ended up getting attention from more teaching focused places. Um, and so that's, you know, ultimately where I ended up. Um, but so I always encourage students to kind of keep an open mind when they're thinking about these different kinds of paths. Um, and you know, you, um, you can't get a job that you don't apply for. So it's better if you, if you have the kind of time and resources to be able to apply for as many types of jobs that you think you would be a fit for as possible. And I would say for the teaching focused types of jobs specifically, there's, um, they're not often advertised as well or in the same sort of channels that um, other kinds of jobs would be. So paying closer attention to um, like the actual job listing website of a particular university that's like in a region that you want to work in or is, you know, an area that you want to work in. um, That's a good way to kind of keep an eye on job ads that might not otherwise um, catch your eye through the traditional outlets. I guess like one thing, and we asked Paul Litvak this, last episode and what I, I guess I hear a lot of people saying they want to apply yeah. to industry or they want to apply to teacher teaching jobs because X and I always want wish I knew is it true that that's yeah. a good reason so like I've heard people say I want to apply to a teaching oriented institution because I want better work-life balance and right. part of me is like what makes you think there's better work-life balance there and maybe there is and maybe it also depends on what stresses you out so mm-hmm. if getting grants stresses you out I could imagine mm-hmm. having a more less stressful life at a teaching or institution, but if teaching stresses you out, then that wouldn't be the case. Yeah, I think it really depends on, yeah, your personal preferences and your personality. Um, but 
Um, my controversial opinion is that <laughs> the teaching-focused schools are worse for work-life balance on the whole than the more research-focused institutions. And the reason that I think this is that um, you know, more of your time is sort of spoken for um, by requirements of things that you have to do. Yeah. So, you know, if, you, if you're teaching a certain number of classes, like that's X, and where X is a large number of hours per week that you have to spend, you know, preparing for class, interacting with students, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So all of the other kinds of things that you want to do besides that, you know, has to come from from some other time period. So there, it, it's, it's not that... Um, people in research-focused jobs don't have so many things filling up their day, it's that there's a little bit more flexibility in terms of how you choose those different tasks and structure them. Whereas, yeah, in a teaching-focused institution, it's kind of done for you by your teaching assignments. Um, but yeah. So yeah, I would also say that like, this was a thing that was sort of thrown around when I was in grad schools that people would say um, that they would consider a teaching focused job if a research focused job didn't work out um, and that attitude was always pretty toxic when we were when I was on the hiring committee side of things at a teaching focused school like if it was clear that someone viewed that kind of job as second place or viewed it as as kind of like a backup that didn't that tended to not go well for them <laughs> so how would a candidate show that that's not the case for them if they really if it is their first choice yeah so the um cover letter uh tends to be pretty important um and i got some advice when i was in grad school that you know people don't really pay attention to cover letters doesn't really matter what you put in them and i would say that that's absolutely not true on committees hiring committees that i've been on um that you want to use the cover letters away as a place specifically to signal your interest in that particular type of job so saying that you know you've uh, read about the school's program in X or whatever it is, like that some specific detail about that school that's genuinely attractive to you at least shows that you are, you know, paying attention to, to that particular place and that you know something about it. Because um, there is a concern in, in with some places that, you know, the, the candidate might not want to stay there, that it would be hard to retain them. Um, and, and people do seem to take that into account. I mean, probably take that into account everywhere, but I think some schools have a little bit of a sense that they might be not as desirable if they're not in as uh, desirable of a location or something, for example. And if somebody were to decide, yeah. sort of as an extension of that question, during grad school that they were pretty interested that they wanted to work at a, um, like a primarily teaching-focused institution, I mean, I guess I know part of the answer, but what should they do during grad school? Yeah, so definitely they should teach. Yeah. <laughs> um, so me, more than being a TA, of course, like you should be the instructor of record um, at least once. Um, we saw all kinds of variability from people's applications in terms of how much experience they had. Um, but generally, candidates that didn't have any teaching experience at all were, were not viewed as favorably. Now, depending on their research area or whatever, the niche that they needed to fill, that might matter less or matter more. But at least one independent teaching experience. Um, it's there are some diminishing returns though. Like you shouldn't feel like you know your twelfth class teaching by yourself is mo much more valuable yeah. than your eleventh or something. Um, but yeah, teaching in areas that are kind of um, all purpose. So things like intro psych methods, stats. Um, mm -hmm. These are the kinds of courses that are going to transfer 
across institutions. So they're, they're the most valuable teaching experiences to have. Um, a general survey course in your specific area is, is fine too. But mm-hmm. um, And then, yeah, highlighting, highlighting on your CV and also in your cover letter um, that your which experiences have been independent. So people don't always make the distinction between their um, TA experiences and their independent teaching experiences, and that's something that we definitely care about. Mm-hmm. Oh, and one other thing that you can highlight um, that people sometimes forget about is when you work with undergraduate students, which a lot mm-hmm. of grad students, of course, do. You know, they supervise a lab or they, they're mentoring undergraduate students. That kind of thing is um, often sort of taken into account as part of the preparation for teaching or that, you know, it shows showing an active interest in mentoring and doing research with undergraduates is mm-hmm. viewed favorably at the majority of places. So this what is, about research experience? Like, should people be emphasizing that as well? And yeah, I can you give any kind of like vague ballpark about what kind of research record people would need to get a job in a liberal arts school? Yeah, so they it's definitely kind of a myth or misunderstanding that research is not valued. I would say it's valued equally as much as teaching it, at least at the places that I've worked. Okay. And again, you're going to see some variability from place to place. But given how competitive the job market is, most uh, teaching-focused places can afford to select a candidate who's strong in both areas. Um, mm-hmm. And they, you know, want to want to do that for a variety of reasons. So you definitely still want to publish. You want to carve out kind of an active area of, of research interest. Um, I guess one thing I saw that might be helpful um, is that you want your research to be something that might be interesting or attractive to undergraduates. Um, mm-hmm. And that might seem like kind of a silly criteria to like actually change your whole research plan around. But if in your materials you can talk about it in a way that's like accessible to a broad audience or um, you know to a student audience in particular, um, we had a candidate in once a while ago, and I'm not even going to remember the research topic, but it's not important. They, they couldn't talk about the research in a way that didn't make it sound esoteric, and the students yeah, were just right. sort of like, yeah, if they came here, like we, you know, I guess we would work with them. But like, they they in a small department, especially the faculty, need to imagine that you're going to be. Um, pulling your weight in terms of mentoring students. Uh-huh. One kind of image I have of a pot- possible perk of doing research of an institution that's not completely or overwhelmingly research-oriented is that you could, and this is shifting a little bit into your research, that you could do things the way you want to do things and not be as dict- not have your practices dictated as much by like what the top journals want or what the granting agencies want. Is that an accurate perception of like one of the perks? Yeah, in my, in my experience, it has been um, that my department has cared about, both departments have cared about whether I engage students in research and whether I was doing some kind of research. But beyond that, they had very little um, opinion about what the topic of that research should be or what my approach should be or yeah, whether I should be trying to get a particular grant or, or publish in a particular journal. Um, so yeah, it is a lot more kind of liberating as far as that kind of thing goes. And I think that's been beneficial for me in particular because I've been able to kind of like follow my nose a little bit and just kind of do what seems interesting to me, which I think has facilitated my work a lot. I think if I had more pressure to do a particular type of work, that would be probably not as good for my research. Mm-hmm. So I w- I'm hoping maybe this is a good time to shift gears a little bit um, and talk about meta-analysis, yeah. um, which I'm really excited to, to hear your thoughts about, Katie, because I've been in the audience for a couple of talks you've given about meta-analysis. 
and it's a really and so you've you've done a lot of um, you've been working you've, so for people that don't follow Katie's work as closely as I do Katie is, has been working sort of on general issues in meta-analysis on reproducibility in meta-analysis as well as a specific meta-analysis that she's going to be presenting at APS um, and I, I, I guess maybe starting really generally like there's a lot of uh, sort of angst right now about meta-analysis because I, it feels like once upon a time there was the general opinion was like meta-analysis is like the top of the research pyramid it's the best evidence we have and there in recent years there's been a, a sort of counter argument saying that well no what what meta-analysis does is it it like averages out all the noise to get you like the pure bias <laughs> and so you know you get like a really precise estimate of publication bias and and you know there mickey inslick famously uh said in an interview at slate meta-analyses are fucked which i then turned into a joke blog post uh um but i'm curious katie like w what yeah where where do you stand in this debate about the like as we sit here in 2018, the mm -hmm. usefulness of meta-analysis as a tool for advancing science. Yeah, I think it's a really it's a really tough question, and it's been really interesting to kind of read a bit about the history of meta-analysis and how it developed and kind of what, how it's been viewed over the years. Um, so the, the first uh, kind of modern meta-analyses were done in psychology um, by a guy. Gene Glass and his uh, spouse, uh, Mary Louise Smith, and they were trying to look at um, whether or not psychotherapy was effective. So basically like the broadest possible question that you could have about mm -hmm. psychology is like, does clinical psychology, like do, does psychotherapy uh, work? Um, and so kind of coming from that, um, meta-analysis sort of spread out throughout um, education and policy and now I would say it's even more popular in the biomedical and health fields than it is in psychology. But it's definitely the case, uh, like you said, that you know, within psychology, at least until somewhat recently, it's enjoyed a kind of um, high status position as the kind of mm, technique that you would want to do if you want to be really, really certain about an effect or you want to kind of think cumulatively about um, a, particular, a particular effect. Um, but there's been kind of debates uh, all the way along about whether or not um, you really are able to develop theory from doing meta-analysis or if it's just an effect size estimate from a particular treatment, like is it for, um, I think Jean Glass called it technology, basically that like you would uh, try to estimate whether, whether a particular intervention or treatment was effective, but he thought that it, it wasn't actually very good for theory development. Um, so now you enter in kind of the uh, reproducibility crisis and QRPs and p-hacking, and um, you add that on top of what we knew all along about the problems that publication bias introduces to meta-analyses, and then that leaves people sort of uncertain about, um, about the status of meta-analyses and what they actually tell us or don't tell us. Um, so yeah, it's been, a, it's been kind of an interesting project trying to make some sense of it all, and I, I don't know if I have, like, on a scale of one to ten, how fucked is meta-analysis? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty fucked. <laughs> pretty fucked. Um, yeah. Yeah, I don't know if I want to put a solid <laughs> number on that. Katie, do you think that it's worth people's time to do meta-analyses? So, yeah, that's a great question as well because and this is it turns out to be an older debate than just the recent mm, things going on, but we could choose to do, like, one really big and really great um, pre-registered study 
Um, or we could choose to do a big systematic review or meta-analysis to try to find out the answer to a question. And so you, if you were considering this, you might think about the time costs associated with both of those um, types of activities. Um, I think meta-analyses uh, are a huge time investment, and especially to do a really good job of it, it takes a really, really long time. So it feels it feels like you should be able to get something out of all of that data that's been you know, published in the field over all of these years. Um, and that it, it must be worthwhile to go back and to combine all of that and see what it says. On the other hand, um, you know, given how time intensive meta-analyses are, maybe it is better to just do a proper um, pre-registered study. I don't know, like, yeah. I don't know if I could come down hard one way or the other here. I mean, I will say that one of the benefits that I see of the process of meta-analysis is that you have to go back and review the literature. And by doing so, you see what's actually been done and what's not been done. So without doing that process, you might not have a complete sense of the kind of the landscape in the, in the particular research area. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. I, I will say this is, I think, one area where psychology actually falls down a little bit compared to some of its peers. Um, so I was recently at a, um, a hackathon in Stockholm, Sweden, actually. And the, the theme of the hackathon was um, all about evidence synthesis. And uh, it was mostly ecologists. Like I was actually basically the only um, psychologist except for uh, Wolfgang Wiegbauer. Um, but the, the ecologists were really into this idea of um, systematic review. And I, I had heard this term before, and of course I've seen it used in the literature, but um, it turns out that in psychology, we don't really do that many systematic reviews. Um, and I think if we did more of that and less just straight meta-analysis, we, we might have um, a better sense of uh, the literature that the research that's been done on particular questions that we're doing. Um, so I'm kind of curious, like, do you guys like if you if I told you systematic review or like if you thought about what systematic review is, like, do you have a sense for what that would mean or like what would qualify something to be a systematic review and not just a meta analysis? I'm picturing like a qualitative version of a of a quantitative meta analysis. Uh huh. I'm pulling That's all Sanjay. I, got. I want. I want to. This is official qualitative research now. I'm getting all your. I'm extracting data. Um, well, I my thing says poor network connection. <laughs> <laughs> Good excuse, Sanjay. My, my 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 Skype is trying to get me out. No, I've I've started encountering the term recently, so I kind of have a rough idea. I didn't know until recently. Um, but yeah, Katie. I mean, so what what do you learn from a systematic review that you don't learn from a meta analysis? So a meta-analysis is the term that means like you're combining studies together quantitatively. And a systematic review can include a meta-analysis, but it doesn't have to. So they're not just qualitative reviews. They are, it's like a broader, um, it's a broader term that encompasses a method. And the method is the important part because the method is designed to reduce bias in the conclusions of the review including the meta-analysis if appropriate. So like basically um, the, the idea with the systematic review is that you come up with a research question that you want to test and uh, using, the, using a review and you set parameters ahead of time for the literature search that you're going to do. So you have to be very specific. Um, they call it PCOT, uh, which is, 
oh, I'm going to mess it up. The I is intervention. The C is comparator, control. Uh, o is outcome. T is treatment. And then the P is all oh, population. So basically, the PCOT framework helps you specify ahead of time all of the details about what studies are going to be in your review versus what are going to be out. And um, in fields uh, outside of psychology, so ecology has this, and then um, biomedicine has this. Um, the policy reviews that Campbell does also follow this, this system. But so basically, you spell out all of these details ahead of time, and then um, you pre-register them. But they, these fields don't just use pre-registration. They actually do a form of registered reports, where the protocol that someone has specified for the review is set out ahead of time. And again, all these details are like agreed upon and so on. And then they do the, when they do the review, they are, they are doing it with an eye towards meeting the standards that they've set out in the protocol. So it's, it's a method that's designed to reduce bias in the outcome of, of a meta-analysis or of a, a synthesis conclusion. So they, they are, you know, it's, it's standards, standard method stuff, like that you want to have blind a coding, that you want to have a dual coding when possible. You want to have specific rules that determine when a variable counts versus doesn't count. Right, so a well-done meta-analysis might be doing some of this stuff anyway, but, but in um, medicine, in the form of Cochrane reviews, in policy for Campbell reviews, and then um, the ecologists also have a group that does this. They have all of these sort of formalized procedures for doing this. So I learned about this, and I was just kind of flabbergasted <laughs> that we don't, first of all, that we don't have um, a body like this. We don't have, within psychology specifically, a, a mechanism that's set up already for doing kind of registered reports um, in the context of a meta-analysis. And that we also don't seem to like take very seriously the difference between meta-analysis and systematic review and kind of putting all of those different checks in place to make sure that the conclusions of a review are, are unbiased. Mm -hmm. It sounds like systematic review is the method part and then meta-analysis is one potential analysis you can do. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I would say so. So, so that it, it's, it, gets, it almost feels like what you're saying or what I'm taking away from it is that it's not only fucked in the way that Mickey said it was fucked, but it's fucked because there's also another source of bias, which is the meta-analyst or the reviewer. Mm -hmm the person doing systematic review or the meta-analysis mm -hmm. can introduce more bias either intentionally or not. Um, so that, so when I think about like how many ways meta-analysis can be fucked, I think about like, it makes me want to give up on meta-analysis, but I think what's really, the pro to me, the problem with a lot of these practices, not just meta-analysis, but other things too, is not that they're done poorly or that they have flaws because all methods have flaws, but that they're given this special status. And so meta-analysis especially. And I've heard science journalists say that meta-analysis is a good solution. Like, okay, I don't trust individual studies. I've heard legal scholars treat things that show evidence in meta-analysis mm -hmm. much more definitively than individual studies and so on. And I used to feel that way too. So do you have any ideas about maybe the, the solution is not so much, we, do, we can do some things to, to fix systematic review and meta-analysis, like what you're talking about with registered reports, reviewing the plan ahead of time, et cetera. But it seems like another thing we need to do is change the status of these kinds of meta science projects in how we uh, evaluate evidence. Like we, it shouldn't be considered as high in the evidence pyramid as it's often treated both by scientists and by non-scientists who use the science. Do you agree? And if so, do you have ideas about how we could do that? I mean, I think it depends on like which specific 
source of bias uh, you think is the largest problem. So there's this kind of esoteric debate about whether um, just in general, not, not just in this area, but in general, whether publication bias or p-hacking is a bigger problem. Um, and I would say, actually, the answer to that debate would then inform your question, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. if it's just publication bias, then having full access to studies that have been done would be enough to solve at least most of the problem. Mm -hmm. And if it's just p-hacking, then tying people's hands ahead of time and making sure that we only do meta-analyses on registered trials uh, should be enough to fix the problem. But of course, it's a combination of both of those problems and the way that those problems interact with each other, interface with each other, um, introduces biases that are hard to quantify in the literature. So, I mean, both of those are problems that need to be fixed. And then in terms of the reviewing process as well, like the, the act of doing the review, as you said, recognizing that the, that the meta-analysts themselves can't have biases that enter the process is actually, I think, not really well-recognized and an important thing to address as well. I guess I wonder, like, if there was a campaign to go around and teach non-scientists that meta-analysis is not what they think it is, mm -hmm. do you think it would be a good thing or a bad thing? I mean, I think, I still think it's better to think cumulatively than it is to think about individual studies. The problem is that, like, it's a kind of a silly heuristic to say that like a single study is always worth less than a meta-analysis. Like that's clearly untrue. If you have a large registered trial, that's a better. That's going to be potentially a better estimate of the true effect size than than any meta-analysis would be. But I think I'd say given the status quo where most individual studies are really flawed, then a meta-analysis out of those individual studies, is it better or worse than them? I don't know, like they're just, I don't, like it's not comparable evidence. I don't know. My sense is just the gap between how people perceive mm -hmm. the value and what um, we think is a value then is bigger for analysis. So like my, cam my campaign wouldn't be to say meta-analysis is worse than individual study, it would just be say you're way overvaluing meta-analysis. You're also overvaluing individual studies, but there's, but the gap is, even like it's just massive in my experience with meta-analysis. I mean, I guess to like to push back on it just a bit, there are some features of some literatures that make them look healthier than others. And so again, you don't really see those until you actually dig into it. So, mm -hmm. you know, you might like one of the things that's super frustrating, for example, in the in the active meta-analysis that I'm doing right now. Um, is that the operationalization of variables and the um, way that things are done across different studies is all over the place. So like there's very little cumulative work going on in this area and it makes it very difficult to combine things together. Um, so if you, you know, if you have a literature where people are working more cumulatively or, or there's something endemic to that field where the manipulation or measurement of a particular variable is simpler or is more clear cut or is, you know, like, like standardized. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about like blood pressure. Yeah, like yeah. people, we measure blood pressure in a certain way. Like there's probably, I mean, maybe I'm missing some nuance to how that's measured, but there's, you know, like th those areas of the literature might be healthier than others. And again, sure you're not going to. Heathers and Dan Quintana can tell us all about how yeah. people pee have that stuff. Yeah. Uh, Katie, I want to ask you about your APS talk. Please tell me about it. <laughs> my, my APS uh, meta-analysis talk. <laughs> Can you give us a preview? Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, this is a meta-analysis that I've been working on for um, about three years, um, and it's with uh, Dermot Lanat and some other colleagues uh, at Lancaster in the UK. 
and this is building on our um, registered replication that we did a while ago about um, the uh, association between temperature and uh, pro-social behavior. So this is the um, Williams and Barge study is like one of the really famous studies in this area that is actually the study that we replicated. Um, in that paper, people hold a hot coffee cup or a cold drink and uh, holding the warm mug, according to the original study, uh, causes people to act more pro-socially and they uh, tend to choose a reward for a friend. Um, and so there's kind of a whole body of literature that sort of stems from, from that study that suggests that there's this kind of link between um, feeling warm and acting warm, that you, uh, when you feel physically warmer, you tend to uh, act in ways that are more pro-social. Um, uh, however, this is kind of like in conflict with a whole other area of the literature that's um, even a little bit older that basically said that people get hot under the collar. <laughs> so if you feel warmer, you tend to act more aggressively and less pro-socially. So there are these kind of two conclusions that, um, at least at a simple level, can't both be true at the same time. Like it can't be true that you feel warmer and then act warmer or that you feel warmer and act less warm. So um, we decided that the way to do this would be to try to find all the studies um, on this topic that had been done and looking specifically at behavioral outcomes. So there's been a bunch of studies that have looked at, you know, cognitions and ratings of other people's personality and stuff like that, but we really just focused on behavioral outcomes. So the independent variable in these studies is always temperature. Um, and for some of the studies, it's ambient temperature. So whether it's like hot or cold and just the environment. Um, and for other studies, it's haptic temperature. So like you're actually holding an object like the coffee cup, for example, that's hot or cold. Um, and then the dependent variable is always some measure of pro-social or antisocial behavior. Um, and so, yeah, it's been a very enlightening experience overall, just sort of kind of seeing um, how much diversity there is in the studies in this area, how much diversity there is in terms of reporting and primary studies. Like anyone who uh, thinks that, you know, just combining studies together and making them into an average is like an easier, simple task, um, I recommend you to give it a try. It's, it's pretty, uh, pretty tedious and pretty frustrating. Um, and in fact, I, I was thinking about this earlier when we were, uh, you guys were reading the letter writer's letter. I'm thinking a first year project systematic review. It sounds really, really challenging. So I would like mm -hmm. to wish good luck to that person. It's going to be a rough go. Um, <laughs> so what did we find? Well, basically, um, we find some slight but not statistically significant evidence in the hypothesized direction for both sets of hypotheses. So in the studies that set out to find whether or not feeling oh, warmer cool. makes you act warmer or more pro-social, you get a slight positive effect size on average, but it's not statistically different from zero. And in the studies that set out to find that feeling warm makes you act more aggressively, they also find support for that. <laughs> so on average, the effect size is like negative 0.03, uh, it's you know, not statistically different from zero. Um, and in fact, we don't actually find much evidence of publication bias. Um, and I have some hunches about why that might be true. But I want to add a caveat before I do that, which is that since this process has been taking so long, we are kind of getting close to the, to the end and finishing the project. 
and we decided to repeat our search to get the most recent studies. And we found, I think, five more studies that have been done in the last year or two that we are adding into the um, meta-analysis. So the results might change based on those studies, but I, I think that the overall conclusion is pretty firm at this point. So. What do you think, so you say you don't find evidence for publication bias. I'm just curious very quickly, do you think there is publication bias and you just the tools didn't detect it? Yeah, or? so I think one, one issue is that we have about 90 effect sizes overall in, in the meta-analysis um, and then unevenly divided between the two sort of sets of hypotheses. Um, so one issue is that we're actually quite underpowered in terms of the number of effect sizes that we have. So power in a meta-analysis, just like power in a multi-level model, comes from the number of level two units that you have. So in this case, that's studies or, or effects. So you're sizes. saying there's absence of evidence of publication yeah. bias, but there's not evidence of absence. Correct. Of the other thing that's tricky is that you know many of these studies are from like the 70s and 80s, and the reporting standards are really, really bad. So like you'll have a study that reports like f of 4.02 p less than 0.05, and that's it. Like that's the only <laughs> that's the only test statistic in the whole paper. So you're trying to reconstruct um, something out of almost nothing. But the other trick is that um, a lot of these older studies used factorial designs, really complicated factorial designs. So it'll be like a two by two by two or like a two by four by two or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they get one significant contrast yeah. out of all of those many factorial, you know, combinations. And you know, that presumably is the, is the thing that makes the paper publishable. But the overall kind of main effect, what we're trying to test of just, you know, comparing hot to cold, the, the main effect of temperature, um, might not be statistically significant. Or it's, mm -hmm. so there's some complications between like the hypotheses that the authors say that they set out to investigate mm -hmm. involving yeah. these multi-way factorial designs, and then what we're actually looking at in this meta-analysis, which is just the simple contrast between hot and cold. So there's two takeaways from this for me. One is that our techniques to identify publication bias are probably not adequate. And two is that when it gets hot, people are aggressively pro-social. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, these are not two ends of a continuum. You know, you can be aggressive and pro-social at the same time. God damn it, take my charity money. I'm going to shove it down your throat. <laughs> well, on that note, maybe it's time for us to wrap up. So, uh, um, Katie, uh, I want to offer you an aggressive thank you uh, for joining <laughs> us today. <laughs> and this has been a lot of fun and, and really enlightening. And uh, thank you. So thank you for joining us. And thanks to everyone for listening. And we'll talk to you next time. Mm -hmm.